2: Welcome to the Arsenal Vision post match podcast.
1: I think it's fair to say that everybody is disappointed with the outgoings. Nobody wants to see big talent leave. But when you crack open the war chest and make a big addition, it gets everybody fired up. So while we say goodbye to Tim and Paul, we are thrilled to welcome Andrew from Arsblog on a short-term contract for an undisclosed fee. This is the Arsenal Vision Post-Match Podcast. My name is Elliot Smith, and you can block me on Twitter at Gunner. Andrew, do you have a Twitter handle you want to throw out there for people? Uh,
3: God, you know, I should set one of those up, actually. I believe this social media is the... It's the new thing now. All the kids are doing it. So. It's a
1: blast. There's a lot of angry people on there. I'm not sure if you're familiar with that. but
3: Right. No, I, I try, and, uh, try and keep away from as much of that as possible.
1: Actually. Understandable. <laughs> actually, uh, quite obviously, Andrew can be found on Twitter at just ArseBlog. That's it. Blog about Arses. Uh, but we also have Clive here. Clive stuck around. We were able to re-sign him. So Clive is here. You can find him on Twitter at PFC Hello, Clive
2: hey man i'm feeling all important thanks a lot
1: <laughs> you're on the pod with me like every time you don't by now i would think that that would be over yeah well look uh andrew one day you're you're talking to ian right the next day you're talking to me so swings and roundabouts um it's, it's been, it's been variety a week. spice of life <laughs> i guess sorry. so uh all right so let's dive into it and i mean uh maybe we'll save some of the the transfer stuff just for a minute but one of the things that i think has been confusing me the more I think about the season. You know, we had this great run-in after we switched to the back three, and obviously the FA Cup win was fantastic. And then we really did have a good start to the season. I mean, Liverpool aside, and not being ready, and the transfer business stuff that everybody's familiar with, we had a good run of form. And I know a lot of focus is on Santi Cazorla getting injured, but what happened in the middle of the season is a little bit hard to reconcile with what we saw bookending the season. And I was wondering, now they've had a little bit of perspective and time to look back on it other than Cazorla's injury, is there any way you can explain how we plumbed such depths in the middle of the season uh, and, and why it wasn't able to get turned around quicker?
3: Um, uh, mm, that I, I, I don't know. I mean, I think when you put it like that, it, it really does hit home to me how the way we ended the season, the way we started the season was, to me, probably much more reflective of the quality of the squad that we have. Uh, that a uh, 19-game unbeaten run after losing that opening game that we, we should not have lost because of the preparation and everything else. We all know that. Um, and people pointed to the the two games that we lost against Manchester City and Everton. We lost two in a week, two away games, having gone ahead. But after that, I think we were another seven games unbeaten. Uh, we I think we won six. We drew one when we got through January. And, you know, it, we weren't firing on all cylinders, but I don't think it was that that threw us off. And whatever happened in that Watford game where we went out and were just blown off the pitch almost by Watford in the opening 20 minutes, followed that up with a game against Chelsea, I, you know, that and then the Bayern Munich games. Arsene Wenger talks about the Bayern Munich games having a profound effect on the on the team, the confidence of the team. Um, I I don't really have any explanation for it other than it was just a complete loss of form maybe uh, just a shitstorm of all kinds of things coming together at the wrong time there were some antics from Alexis there was the disciplinary thing that went on there was, you know, talk about Arsene Wenger's contract began to become this long saga that nobody could get away from the team lost confidence, lost belief wasn't playing well why, I don't know. I, just, I really don't have any idea as to why it why it happened and why it took so long to get out of it. That was the thing.
1: Yeah, I mean, it certainly seemed like by the time he made the changes, it almost felt like the players had gone to him and said something. I don't know if there's any behind-the-scenes information about that, but the way they celebrated the win over Burrow when they had switched to the back three so emphatically and so together as a squad, it was almost as if they were celebrating this sort of tactical innovation making the difference for them. Um, Or maybe it was just the fact that they had finally won a game. I mean, Clive, was this the clearest example of a period where Arsene Wenger couldn't get it right from a decision-making standpoint? I mean, if you think about some of the things he had to confront, he loses Cazorla and he doesn't seem to really have an answer for that. He chose not to contest the Shaka red card, seemingly as as a teachable moment for Shaka, but that cost us... Uh, he moves Alexis out of the center forward position where he'd been thriving. He then has that weird disciplinary thing with Alexis where he sits him for the first half of Liverpool, but then tries to have him be the savior for the second half of the very same game. Um, He's stuck with Coughlin for a period of time that maybe wasn't warranted. Do you just see it as sort of being an avalanche of a series of decisions he made over that period that not only cost us in terms of results, but robbed the team of any cohesion and fluency in the way they were playing?
2: The way I look at it is something that Tim said, and when he said it early in the season, it really struck me. He said that Wenger is really good at managing teams, but not so good at managing squads. And our squad, for the first year, many years, I can remember, many people were saying our squad is good. We even got to January, and the whole January transfer window went by without the hysteria we normally have, because we were happy with our squad numbers. But I actually think Wenger's not very good at the last squad because he's forced into decisions and sometimes he gets the decisions wrong and then he compounds them i just don't think he manages his numbers really really well even even bringing us back to the cup final we had a threadbare squad and he eventually picked the right solutions because he had less options and the and the choices he had to make he made the right ones when you look you think back to Casola's Achilles when it went he played on a Saturday and he, and he made him play Tuesday night at home versus Ludogorets, a poor team. But he played him twice within three or four days and his, and his Achilles breaks down. It may have broken down, but why take the risk when you've got Granite Xhaka on the bench? I just think he struggles with a large number of players. He struggles to make the right decisions. He's very, very loyal. What happens when you're in the workplace over many, many years and you develop relationships, is your, your decision becomes less ruthless. It's just a byproduct of human behavior. You work with people for a long time, you start to like them. When you're in charge, you can have people around you that you like and you can keep them there. It's a byproduct of being somewhere a long time, and I'm afraid it's a byproduct of middle to latter age. We like people that we like, and we suffer fools a lot less. Mm. And sometimes you need to be ruthless. and, And it's just something that I don't think he is. I think he just likes people. He wants to develop people. He wants to see the good in people. And he will play people through form. He will pick players when they're not in form. And we talk about those key moments. One of the key moments for me was um, Southampton in the Cup transitioning to Watford at home. Southampton in the Cup, we had an exhilarating performance, 4-3-3. I know it wasn't a great Southampton side that we played. But we could all see uh, a level of verve, uh, tact- tactical awareness, speed, transition. We saw a great 5-0 performance. And then he dropped, what, nine, all ten of them? Of
1: them. <laughs> Admittedly, yeah. there were a lot of kids Every in the side. But one. yeah, he just changed right back to the team that hadn't been performing.
2: Every single one was dropped. And um, and so they're thinking, okay, we just won 5-0. Uh, there was a hat-trick in there, I believe. And um, Welbeck scored a couple. We saw... A start from Maitland-Niles. We saw oxlade Chamber in the middle. Bang, all gone. And we went back to the Giroud-Ramsey slower Arsenal. But they weren't in form at the time. They weren't fit. They weren't ready. But they were the names that he trusted. And I don't blame them. But I just wish he would give them time, Mm -hmm. those players, to find their form and pick the ones that are on form to beat Watford at home. And I think it's really cost us. So it comes back to squad management. I don't think he's great at it. But I will say, when it comes down to managing less numbers, maybe you should think about this in your transfer policy. Have higher quality players, a smaller squad, but a higher quality squad, which allows them less decisions, but better players. Yeah,
1: and Sorry, ahead. One thing
3: that I thought was quite interesting, just in relation to what you're talking about there, was when when we had these bad performances, when we were going through this really bad patch between the end of January and the end of April there were moments where I think we were all crying out for for change. Um, And I don't don't mean necessarily the big change, but change uh, the the team, change the dynamic of the team, maybe change the formation. There was talk about formation change uh, a little bit as well. But what he seemed very wedded to was the idea that the players who didn't play well in the previous game needed to play again to restore the confidence that they needed to then get a good result, you know? So he sort of helped that cycle perpetuate in a way by not Um, by not freshening things up. And maybe that's, maybe it speaks to him not having enough faith in some of the players that he has in the squad to be able to make the impact that he wants. But I think it goes to what Clive was saying about the way that he views people that he would rather give those guys another chance to prove that they can do what he knows they can do, what he's seen them do before, rather than try and dent their confidence further by leaving them out.
1: Yeah. And doesn't
3: that speak? I've got to come back on this one,
2: mate, Because doesn't that speak to the culture? doesn't that speak to what's allowed? Right? So if you're allowed to turn up for work half hour late every day, guess what? You turn up for work half hour late. If someone pulls you up and say, if you're late, you're going to be fired. Guess what? You're getting on time. Mm. It's like, it's what's allowed. It's the culture, the environment. And he's a developmental coach. He's a facilitator of careers and people. And there are times when we need him to be more ruthless. And, I, I think in the environment that's now professional football at the premiership level and the monies that are involved and the expectations that are involved and the microscope that's on the game, I think you need to be more ruthless to send messages mm-hmm. to the rest of your squad. And mm-hmm. I think that's where he just, I don't want to say fails because if I had a son, I know which club I'd want him to play for. <laughs> you know, so, um, because you, I know he's going to get looked after. Right? So, um, but, it's just the way he is, and maybe the expectation of us, all of us, is slightly mm. different. We demand something else.
1: Well, the, good, the good news here is that I, I must not be reaching latter age because I neither like nor am liked by anyone I work with. So, you know, on the bright side, <laughs> I'm, I must still be a young buck. Um, yeah, I, I agree with that. I think, you know, the most public display of discipline we've seen Arsene meet out in any recent memory is what he did with Alexis in the Liverpool game. And it's a classic move of someone who's just not comfortable in that skin, right? I mean, not starting mm. him... And then bringing him on at halftime to be the savior—it like, just, it's the most muddled form of of discipline and sets the wrong example. And I don't think it's any surprise that that it didn't work out. Um, you know, now one of the things with Arson though, that we tend to do is is we we have become more adept at analyzing the low points than the high points. I mean, he now has delivered three FA Cups in four seasons, um, and and it is our first time out of the top four in twenty years. And the one thing I wonder, Andrew, is just that. You know, as someone who obviously analyzes Arsenal every single day for the blog, twice a week for the podcast, you know, goes to games, talks to to supporters and, and former players all the time, is the real problem just boredom? I mean, we average about 70-something points, you know, 1.9 points per game over the last decade or so. He's never really been bad. And, in fact, this is the first time ever 75 points has landed outside the top four. Um, He's even delivered the trophies that for so long we claimed we would trade top four uh, in favor of. So... Given his his consistency, um, is it just the fact that sport is supposed to be about exceptionalism and not consistency? Is it more just the boredom and familiarity breeding contempt than it is an actual decline in in his standards and his performances?
3: Yeah, I think it might well be. Uh, People have become – there is – the consistency can be looked at in two ways. I I think it is uh, a remarkable thing because it is very difficult for any manager to exist at the top level of the game and be consistent. Um, you see guys who will come in and have a great season, you know, a, a Brendan Rodgers or someone like Loudrup, who comes in and has a great season, but they, they just can't maintain that. So what Wenger can do, season after season after season, in getting X amount of points, is in many ways remarkable. But there is, at the same time, a familiarity to it, isn't there? There are... Things about the way Arsenal season goes uh, that that we've all seen before, and we've come to expect them. You know, it, 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 we're we're all firing out these memes and jokes and what have you, because they're they're wedded in truth to a certain extent. And I do think that if uh, you know, if if a new manager had come in in 2012, let's say we got, cr- done something crazy and brought in a new manager in 2012, and we won. Three FA Cups uh, under his tenure, and we'd signed a player like uh, Alexis Sanchez, signed Messi Ozo. I think there would be a lot less um, ire directed towards him, even if people uh, have the expectations of Arsenal as a football club challenging for the Premier League title. I don't think that's an unreasonable expectation for a club like Arsenal with the resources that it has and, the, uh, and everything else. But I do feel like, yeah, there is just people uh, are are just kind of bored of of Arsene Wenger, and they're bored of listening to him say certain things, and they're bored of um, some of the stuff he says after games that we all we all know the things, the handbrake, the little bit jaded, the mental strength. You know these these are things that you know can irritate people, and you know to be honest, they sort of wash over my head now at this point because I do feel like in many ways it's just part of who he is. That he won't, um, he won't rock the boat. He's not going to come out after a terrible performance and say my players were absolutely shit today. Even if they were, what what happens on the training ground or behind closed doors? You know, I'm I'm really not sure, but I, I imagine that he's not quite as polite to them uh, the next day. Uh, so there is an element of that for sure. That that because he's been there for so long, for for some for for some Arsenal fans, I've never known. Arsenal without Arsene Wenger as the manager like you could be nearly 30 years of age depending what age your your uh, interest in football really started to de- to develop and you you've known nobody else as the manager of Arsenal other than mm-hmm. Arsene Wenger and there is i think something in the human condition isn't there that after a while you just want something different you want change you want you want just a bit of variety as we spoke about a little bit earlier on so i think that, that is a struggle. That's a, a thing that he has to struggle with and struggle against because of his longevity.
1: Yeah, if only there was an Ashley Madison website for managers. You know what I mean? Like you could have a little affair. Have someone else manage your team for a day or two and then go back to Arsene Wenger's quiet consistency. Um, yeah. <laughs> I, look, I mean, at the, I don't know if that, that reference translates, by the way, but that's a website no, for
0: no, no,
3: I, I heard about that. They, okay. they got hacked, didn't they?
1: they? They did get hacked, and all the scummy people on it had their their uh information shared on the internet yeah and if those scummy people are listeners then we love you and i'm sorry that happened to you uh but (laughs) you know i i mean you you think about it and first it was you know the goalposts do move sometimes with him and i think you both know that i i am ready for managerial change but it's he needs to just spend some money why won't he spend some fucking money and then he did start spending money i mean last summer he still spent money but then it's oh he always leaves um he always leaves a hole in the squad or I wish he'd be more tactically innovative and then he does make a tactical innovation, then it's I wish he would have done it sooner or, you know, we don't care about top four, we want trophies and then he wins three FA Cups in four years. And so I have some sympathy with him because he has made some of the changes people have asked for down the years and he has achieved some of the things people have asked for down the years, but it's the failure to overachieve just once. You know, if we had finished 10th, five times in the last 10 years, but won one league title or one Champions League. And I know that's a big or or if. Um, I think the the mentality, the mindset might be different. Um, one thing that obviously did shape the season a lot was the switch to the back three. Um, and I'll just stay with you for a second, uh, Andrew Um, because obviously from a reputation standpoint, you far exceed Clive's contribution to this podcast. So, you know, Oh no, (laughs) (laughs) No, that's okay. We already asked for people to to bash one another in in the review section of the pod. So it's fine. But, um, uh, with respect to the back three, there were a lot of people that that thought he kind of did it reluctantly. Um, and there was concern that he might not stick with it, seeing the difference that it made and the way it suited the squad we had. How important do you think it is that, that we stick with it? And do you think he will?
3: I you know I think it's been something that's been really beneficial uh, for the team obviously we could see how it reflected in results and it's taken them a little bit of time to 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 get used to it I think it the the, the best performance we had with a back 3 was in the FA Cup final and that was with a back 3 that nobody really would have uh, <laughs> selected uh, if everybody had been fit you know but I think uh, one of the issues that that's uh, Bothered me over the last season, two seasons even. Is I think without Cazorla, we struggle in midfield, and midfield doesn't really function very well. And it began to function very well towards the end of the, se- of the season with that back three. Yeah, yeah,
1: brilliant. And it
3: really did. So we saw. You know, I was I was always very keen to see a Xhaka and Ramsey partnership. There were reasons why it didn't happen because Ramsey had been injured, Xhaka was suspended. Uh, you know, the team was playing badly. It was hard to judge exactly. Couldn't really judge any individual. Uh, for a long time because the team itself the collective was playing so poorly but I, I was encouraged by what, what we saw towards the end of the season the other thing that I think flies under the radar a bit, you talked about Alexis being moved out of the the striker position where he was so effective uh, I could be wrong on this but I think he scored 10 goals in the games since we moved to a back three mm-hmm. he scored 10 times from a position where he feels a little bit more involved a little more liberated uh, to, to get involved with the play and we know how how, how he likes that. I think as well we do have the personnel to carry it out uh, going going forward next season. We've got Mustafi, we've got Koscielny, we've got Rob Holding, we've got Mertesacker who's going to play another year and who showed that you know he is somebody who can still contribute to the squad. We've got Gabriel, we've got Monreal who can slot in there. We'll have Callum Chambers back perhaps as well. So that's something we'll have to manage a little bit as well because uh, if you're playing three central defenders you need to have a little more depth in that position than than you would normally do. Will he carry it on? I, I don't know. I really hope so. Um, maybe we'll get an idea by who he buys this summer. Um, that might give us a clue, because if he brings in a really good midfield player, I wonder if we might switch back to a three in midfield. Um, and that might have an impact on the back four. I'd like to see it, because, you know, it felt like uh, there was something, like I spoke about a few minutes ago, there was something samey about Arsenal, about the way we played, you could you could pick the team, basically, week in, week out, you knew more or less what the team was going to be, how it was going to play, and it, it it provided variety, it provided something a bit more interesting, but mm-hmm. it was also really effective, and I think it does work well to get the best out of some of the players that we have, so I'm hoping he does, yeah.
1: Well, And, and isn't that it also? I mean, like, wouldn't Couldn't you make an argument that the reason there had been so much frustration with arson wasn't results, wasn't lack of trophies, it's that for large stretches of the past four, five, six seasons, the football had gotten pretty stale. And ironically, the switch to the back three made it more interesting to watch, more interesting to guess at who the the team was going to be. I think it actually brought out some of our more exciting football of the season, certainly the second half of the season. I mean, I think there is, Clive, a huge desire from the fan base. The, the reason we fell in love with Arsene, you know, gold Premier League trophies aside, is this beautiful football. And it hadn't been beautiful for a while. That that stereotype had, had stopped being accurate. And so, I mean, would you say that for a manager who prides himself on being an attack-minded manager, that he will be able to stick with the back three having seen that it can revive some of this exciting football that he hadn't seen his teams playing with a with back four.
2: Yeah, for me, the back three has been the, the highlight of the season because, as we alluded to earlier, we've, we've got used to all the press conferences, we've got used to seeing him on, on the sideline, we've got used to the 4-2-3-1, and we've got used to him picking certain favourite players and trying to make them work into that formation. While and we talk about you know, his attacking philosophy, but I actually think he's betrayed his attacking philosophy by trying to put round pegs into square holes. Please say and,
1: Olivier Giroud. Please say Olivier Giroud. I'm just well, I'm just he's, one those, <laughs> he's one of those people,
2: and we've seen Ramsey play on the right wing and to varying success. We've seen different different players play in different positions just so they can get on the pitch into this formation, and what he's done you know, we've, we've, not, we've not really realised. We're actually not playing with a number 10 anymore. We've got the best number 10 in world football and we don't play a number 10 anymore. And so we've stopped trying to build the team around certain favourites and actually created a system which suits the collective. I don't think there's hardly a player in the squad that doesn't look better in this formation, maybe apart from Theo Walker, who would struggle as one of those inside forwards, who has struggled, but maybe he can adapt. But almost everybody else looks better. Players that we've ridiculed at times, like Gabriel, when he played in certain games, look tremendous. Mertensacker, we've always had the worry about him covering large spaces. One game in the back three, Arsenal legend forever. Right. So there's so many players, Ramsey, who I've criticised for being ill-disciplined, not getting back into his hole quick enough running where he likes in a 4-2-3-1, that that player we need to be far more structural. With this system, with more defenders on the pitch and better recovery speed and more physicality, suddenly Ramsey's going one direction, and that's forward. When he's going forward and then he scores a goal, we elevate him in our minds immediately. So I, I did read that he is going to stay with this. He has sort of said this is a technical base for next season. And I hope he upgrades from within this shape. And I do think another midfielder will have to come somebody with a bit more speed and dominance in the centre there because we're still a little bit slow. And obviously, the wing-back situation needs to settle itself down. The left wing-back looks like it's coming. Do we need somebody else on the right and maybe make Oxide 10, one of the central players, and do some you know, do some selling in that area that we need to do? There's so many options. Obviously, the centre-forward is, is the big one, and what happens with Alexis. But within this structure, all that happens is we're not so vulnerable to the West Brom's the Watfords, the, the Crystal Palaces. We should be able to go there and and, and and win those games and maybe focus a lot more like we did in the Chelsea game on being a, a lot more assertive, you know, a lot more physical where we need to be. Mm-hmm. But also move the emphasis forward into their half and we played Chelsea at their own game and, and we beat them. So the potential of this system is just it's just wonderful for me. And it's and it's reawoken my Love for Arsenal football, you know, and and to think if he is to develop on it and upgrade it, I, I'm really looking forward to next season on that basis.
1: Look, I mean, this is what happens when you have the same manager for so long. It's just fun to be debating different things, like who's going to play left wing back or whether oxlade Chamberlain is a better right wing back than Hector Bellerin. You know, just just having different debates can sort of liven the mood of the fans. Um, unfortunately, we're not going to be able to necessarily build on the strength of the back half of this season because. There could be a lot of turnover this summer, and so Andrew obviously like one of the players that I adore is Alexis Sanchez. Um, mm. Weirdly, he seems to divide opinion. I'm not totally sure why. I mean, yes, he gives the ball away, but I read an interesting statistic today, and not to get too up the ass of the stats community, but in terms of expected goals and expected assists, he's the highest ranked player in those two combined in Europe, behind only Messi and Suarez. So that's the kind of that's the kind of attacking prowess that he he adds to the team. And I guess my question for you is, do you, do you have any hope of him staying? And just where does he rate for you among the best attacking players that Arsene Wenger has brought to the club?
3: Um, oh God, I think it's really important that we keep him. It really, I mean, I, I don't understand anyone Can who we? says we'd be better off at him. Can we? It really depends on what he's got, what else is on offer to him.
1: The holding him to his contract thing is just is just paper talk, right? I mean, there's we've seen that yeah. before, and that doesn't happen, does it?
3: Yeah, I mean, look, they've they've talked a lot this last couple of weeks. They've talked a lot about what they can do, um, what they will do, or are, are, is quite often a different thing. But there isn't maybe the same financial pressure to to sell him if we don't have to or if we don't want to. But I think the the key isn't so much keeping him for one more year. It's it's getting him to sign a new contract, and that I think is going to be a huge challenge. Um, he, he's just so productive. He's so much fun to watch. He's frustrating, of course, at times. He's maddening. He he can he can combine these moments that are absolutely sublime with others that are completely ridiculous. You know, a simple pass just goes to an opposition player, etc., etc. But. You can't argue with 30 goals and 14 assists in a season, and you know he is a player who has got better at Arsenal. I think he's improved as a footballer at Arsenal under Arsene Wenger as well. I mean, I think it would be fair to give the manager some credit for that because he has used him in a variety of positions and uh, and has in nearly all those positions got good performances and got good stats and numbers out of him. But you know, he was he's the sort of player. Him and Mesut Ozil were the two players that were supposed to take us to. The next level. These were the caliber of players that Arsenal were going to attract. They were going to keep, and they were going to use these players to bring in more players of that caliber. That was my, my assumption. Is you know, when you start down that road, when you go down that road, that's that's the road that you've got to travel, right?
1: Technically speaking, um, Europa League is another level.
3: <laughs> it is. It is another level. <laughs> it's a different Absolutely. level. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not. I'm not. I'm not snobby at all about the Europa League. I have to say because well, we, um, we can go Chad- on to that. Sure. Come on, but I think you know it it would it would do us a lot of damage, not just from a playing point of view, but for the reputation of the club if we couldn't keep Alexis Sanchez. It's going to be extremely difficult. But you know he's twenty eight. He's had one of the best seasons uh, of his life, probably the best season of his life. There can't be too many clubs in Europe who wouldn't take him if they could. Now there are thankfully only a few clubs in Europe who can afford him. But to think he's not hot property. Like, imagine if Alexis Sanchez had done that for somebody else and we went into the market to buy Alexis Sanchez. Everybody would be absolutely creaming themselves, going, this is, this is wonderful. So I think it's, you know, the, the futures of those two players loom large over this summer because uh, I think, as I said in the, the podcast, uh, the Arsecast Extra earlier, that if we can keep them, it might help us attract other big players. And if we bring in other big players it might help us keep them. Mm -hmm. Uh, So there's a sort of circle of transfer life going on here and they've got to get on top of it very quickly because if we can't keep Alexis, if it becomes apparent that we can't keep him or he does not want to stay, then, then I think we've got to move, move quickly to make sure that we don't have one of those long running summer sagas, you know, the kind I think we've, uh, we've all experienced them before, but uh, (laughs) to me, they've got, they've got, they've got to do like everything. Everything they can possibly do to keep him. And if that doesn't work, I don't know what we can do. Maybe just keep him for the final year of his contract. I don't, I don't know. Uh, I, to me, that seems unrealistic. But um, it, it's got to be the the number one priority um, right now, I think.
1: Well, to win that 130 million euro bidding war with Real Madrid for Mbappe, we may need to sell Alexis. So there you go. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, just real quickly. I mean, free, and then I, then I want to get Clive's thoughts because he is a valued member of the the podcast. Um, I mean, Alexis, for you, in terms of just a not necessarily a, a number ranking, but where he is in the pantheon of great uh, Arsene Wenger players, is he up there for you yet?
3: Um, so much of what what makes a great player is tied in with success,
1: mm-hmm.
3: and yeah. Alexis has been brilliant, individually brilliant, has contributed some incredible numbers, lots of goals, some absolutely breathtaking performances, some uh, some of the best goals, I think, some of the most exciting football we play is when Alexis is on song. You know, he scored some incredible goals. Um, so, yeah, for me, he's up there because... He has, while the team is underwhelmed, and the team itself has fallen short of the targets that we would like it to achieve in terms of progressing in Europe and challenging, not necessarily winning the Premier League. You know, I think in some ways people, um, not that they're tarred by association, you know, but it's hard to look at players who... who who underachieve year after year, a team that underachieves year after year and think there are great players in there. But I think Alexis is a great player. Um, he, ha- he has been part of two FA Cup winning sides. Um, you know, Mesut Ozil as well, won three FA Cups since he joined the club. But yeah, I, I, I think he's, you know, he's 28 now. I, he's got two, three more years at this level, provided he doesn't get absolutely knackered um, playing another su- summer tournament. But yeah, look look at his numbers. I, I love watching him. And the, the idea of uh, an ar- Arsenal without Alexis Sanchez is one that um, makes my trousers brown going into a new season.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, uh, I've got plenty of diapers sitting around if you need them. But I, I can <laughs> tell you that, you know, for me, I, I, all you have to do is say Cesc Fabregas. I know that's a player that you adore, uh, a player I'd still have back at Arsenal. I'd probably get pilloried for saying it. But like not really part of of a winning culture at Arsenal during his time here, at least during his his senior team, first team participation, mm-hmm. but a player that I, I just I cannot explain how much I loved watching that player for Arsenal. And Alexis yeah. it hasn't hit those heights for me, but he's, he's certainly like that, someone who I just enjoy watching. Clive, I think the, the problem is if you were to lose an Alexis, no matter who you sign, it causes such a problem because of how influential he is in the way we attack and the way we build up, Ozil and Alexis are always among the top pass combinations in the side every game, meaning that he is such a fulcrum for Ozil and vice versa. So yeah. can we, is there any scenario this summer where we lose Alexis and sign other players, A and other, and improve? Or is the loss of a player that's been that crucial to the, to the squad something that will be nearly impossible to overcome in the span of you know one preseason?
2: I think uh, I think it's, it's, I'm going to take it up a level, right? I think we have to grow up a little bit. I think what we've what we've done is we've lost our strategy in the transfer market, right? So when we moved to the ground, we were forced into Project Youth, right? So, but at least we had a youth policy, a youth strategy. So all the best young players around the world, we brought them early, we nurtured them, brought them through. We knew what we were doing. We we didn't always like it. We complained when we had to play PSV Eindhoven in the a, in a quarterfinal of the Champions League with two 19-year-olds in centre midfield in Fabregas and to We didn't like it. We got knocked out. But at least we knew what we were doing. We knew why we were doing it. We then got to the ground and we then, basically, we got to 2014 and we had more money. We bought Ozil. And then we bought Sanchez. And then we got cold feet. We didn't do anything. We bought Pete a check. And we didn't really carry on with the identity, which we were starting to assume was, by one or two world-class players every season, build that into the squad. But we got cold feet. We started to buy squad players. And we didn't quite know what to do with the extra revenue that we had. We didn't know what to do with it. So we had this mixed transfer policy. And now we're sitting there as adults watching this team And we are so dependent on a couple of superstars because we feel in our hearts they're the ones that carry us and the numbers are telling us that way. I want to move away from that. I want to move away to a far more, let's understand what the strategy is so when you're trying to attract players, they know what Arsenal stand for. So the most important thing this summer for me, whether we lose them or they stay, is to say, okay, whatever we do now, it's defined. We're going to get rid of the deadwood. We're going to add a certain quality of player. So everyone from the outside can see what Arsenal represent, see what they stand for, and we can become attractive for those certain players that fit our model. At the moment, we're flip-flopping between buying expensive players, buying cheap players, buying very cheap players, buying squad players, having gambles. And all it says is that one man's at the top, and it feels as though he's experimenting with all our hearts, right? All I want to see is a defined transfer policy. So if we're going to be Monaco, let's be Monaco. If we're going to be Athletic Madrid, let's, let's be them. But let's, look, let's not just wait at Barcelona's back door to try and get their cast-offs. Let's define Arsenal's transfer strategy. And then we can develop something that's sustainable year on year. And that's what I'd like to see more than anything this season. Whatever happens, we won't be losing these people again. It's not just about revenue, it's about what you stand for, what your culture stands for, and then that flips to your ambitions. And what I was really pleased about some of the statements last week, and I know they could all disappear really quickly, at least none of us can not say that the ambitions have been restated, there's been a mental reset, there's been lots of things said that have all been recorded, and now they've got to deliver. And so that's what I'm looking for, really. And I think Alexis and Ozil are just byproducts of that. Whether they stay or go, I don't really mind. What I want to see is a defined strategy. So if they go, they're replacing a certain way. I now know what we stand for. Because then I can I can predict going forward and I think it's something that's much more sustainable.
1: Yeah, a coherent strategy that, that fits the tactical strategy on the pitch, and I think that's really a point really well made because I think you can look back over the last ten years and look at players like Andrea Shavin, Lucas Podolski, even Granit Chaka this year. But players who came into the squad as talented players but without it being clear what their defined role was or how they would fit into the system we were playing. I mean you guys surely remember Arsene Wenger describing Granite Shaka as being box-to-box and then not being box-to-box and a deep-lying playmaker and then a guy who's better, more advanced. And it was unclear whether he even knew the player he had bought. Um, and I think if you have a clear tactical concept, you know, whatever you think of a Klopp... Uh, or whatever you think of Aconte, or whatever you think of Pep Guardiola, I think as they build the squad, they have a clear idea of the types of player they need in each position. Whereas I think Arsene Wenger's philosophy for a long time was just accumulate talent, which was exactly. really good 10 years ago. But as... But
2: Elio, they- you know what, mate? You know, with the system now, we can almost look at the players within that system, with that formation, and we can almost tell the type of player we need for a win-back role, we can tell what type of centre-halves we need. We need ball playing centre-halves that are happy in wide spaces. We know the types of midfielders we need for that formation. So we have a chance here to build something that can continue. Before, I felt it was so varied, so mixed, and quite hard to quantify and define. And, um, and it was too superstar-dependent. I think now we've got a greater chance of moving towards a collective, and, and that's where we need to be. We don't want to be dependent on on single individuals to to bring us forward.
1: Yeah, and, and that's fair. And Andrew, I think, I think one of the things that also maybe has been a, a problem over the last few seasons is that Project Youth failed in a lot of ways. Um, it succeeded in some ways. It kept us at the upper echelon of the game. It kept us in the Champions League. But um, along with talent like Cesc Fabregas, who wound up going off to Barcelona, and then we know what happened from there, there are players like Theo Walcott. There are players like Kieran Gibbs. There are players like Jack Wilshere. It hasn't really happened for the way we might have hoped. And is it sort of time for the manager to draw a line under some of the last remaining players from Project Youth and and start to give up for lack of a better way to put it on some of those players that are occupying key squad roles but just don't seem to be able to contribute what they need to
3: Yeah, I mean look at the, the weird thing it's weird like someone like Theo Walcott got 19 goals last season and if you if you look at
1: That seems impossible. That is, is that a real statistic? I know it's, it,
3: <laughs> <laughs> no, real. It's nineteen goals, and like if we bought a winger come in and scored nineteen goals, we'd be delighted. I mean, coming back to something that you said about like Arsene Wenger disciplining players, he doesn't seem to discipline players. I know some of this might be down, or probably is primarily down to the formation. But Theo Walcott has been left pretty much uh, on the bench since he made those comments. Um, that they after wanted one,
1: it more after the after yeah, the Palace game.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that could have been it. You know, and that could be Banger's way of, of uh, disciplining a player. Um, yeah, I, I, there there are decisions to be made uh, over players like that who are useful but maybe not useful enough. Like if you keep falling short with the same players, if you're not going to change the manager, then the only thing you can do is change uh, some of the players, right? So I think there, are, Kieran Gibbs, uh, nice guy, good footballer, but plateaued about two or three years ago. Uh, his development just stopped. He didn't really kick on to become the player that people thought he might become. Uh, he's been left on the bench for pretty much the entire season until he was called up towards the end. Jack Wilshire made a big gamble last uh, summer when he decided that he wanted to go to Bournemouth. Um, he, he sort of called the manager's bluff. The manager called his bluff, let him go. And I think Wilshire had to be outstanding for Bournemouth to come back to Arsenal and expect to walk back into the team and walk back into the squad as if nothing happened because he's the one who agitated to leave. And I don't think he did that at Bournemouth. I think he was all right and then got an injury, but didn't contribute a great deal. He stayed fit, which is like a a trophy for Jack, but that that's about the size of it. So I think there's a decision to be made there. you know, there's still the risk that he could stay fit and fulfill that potential somewhere else. But at this point, you know, can Arsenal afford to wait for Jack Wilshire any longer? I don't think they can. Theo Walcott is another one, I think, who, A, just does not fit into this system anymore. Somebody who doesn't know what kind of a player he wants to be anyway. He wanted to be a striker. He was played as a striker. He decided he didn't want to be a striker then, so he moved back to the right wing. Now we don't really play in a, in a system that suits him. He's a guy who, who uh, could bring you in a fair amount of money somebody will pay you decent money for Theo Walcott because he's, he's productive, he scores you goals. But if Arsenal are to move on to the next level, then I think you have to cut out what... If it's not necessarily dead wood, it's wood that has not uh, has not contributed as much as you need those players to contribute if you want to win the title, if you want to do things in Europe. And we haven't done that. So there are definitely players in, in that squad now that would then speak to a ruthlessness... Uh, in the manager that we haven't necessarily seen um, too often. You know it's not as if you don't you're not a manager you know, for thirty years or thirty five years um without being able to make big decisions and tough decisions. But I feel like over the last couple of years, he's been he's made the easy decision a couple of times with some of those players rather than rather than try and uh, push the boat out a little bit. But I think after everything that's happened last season, the pressures, the demands on him, um, the expectations going into a new season will be uh, just as high, even though we're in the Europa League expectations about what Arsenal should do in the, in the, uh, in the, in the Premier League will be just as high. The patience levels will be lower for, for success. So I think Wenger probably knows that he's got to, he's got to address some of the, the weaknesses, some of the flaws that were in the makeup of the squad. And, uh, those are guys who, who may well pay the price.
1: Yeah, and I mean, unfortunately, it may be a little too late from a fee fee standpoint to recoup what they could have been worth if we had been willing to be a little more ruthless, as you said. Um, mm. One exception there is, I don't know whether you would like to do this or I could, is just uh, take Kieran Gibbs, put him on your shoulders and run him to Newcastle for the mooted £15 million fee. Uh, well,
3: look, if anyone's offered <laughs> £15 million pounds for Kieran Gibbs and we don't take it, we'd be absolutely, we'd be foolish. I don't think we're going to we get bought that a much. We
1: left back, back, too, so... <laughs>
3: Yeah, well he's apparently he's going to be announced uh, imminently but when does when's this podcast going out
1: tonight I mean, probably tomorrow morning uk time which tomorrow. to the people listening is right now you're listening to it so yeah. it's out so
3: oh yeah so it's out so tuesday morning <laughs> so i believe from what we the whispers are that he's going to be announced today while you're listening to this, not today. While we're we're recording it, so, so while we
1: can hate Rafa Benitez for some painful Champions League memories, uh, he's trying to get back into our good graces by buying Kieran. Gibbs. I,
3: I don't know bills. if he's going to pay 15 million quid for for Kieran Gibbs, but uh, <laughs> yeah, I think Gibbs' time is is pretty much up.
1: Yeah. Hey, hey, Clive, as as a uh, someone who is a coach and and really thinks about things on a a level that I am certainly not uh, equipped to. Um, is there one of these players that's really frustrated you that you felt with the right coaching or the right opportunity or the right attitude really would have made it? Is there one of these players that sort of now their star is waning at Arsenal who you're most disappointed to see not not having reached their potential?
2: I think uh, as a player, you need to be, you know, you need to perform. But you also need to know yourself as a player and, and you need to be coachable. And And I was... Really dis- the one that frustrates me the most is, is Theo Walker, actually, because I think he's You're got You're not the just most saying that
1: because Andrew's on the pod?
2: <laughs> <laughs> no, nah, he's, he's got the most to give, right? He's got, his physical attributes are huge. He, he's got the ability to do more. And I don't think he's worked hard enough at other aspects of his game. When I look around and uh, other players and, and look at their ability to play both sides up front and centre-forward, he can do that if he, if he puts his mind to it. He had a period on the left, of maybe last season, and I think he sulked through that period. He scored one goal, amazing goal against Man City, and that was the reason he was put there. He's got on a, he's got a great shot. He's got to learn to receive the ball on his left foot and go outside people on his left side. Good forwards can do that. I look at Marcus Rashford, for example. He can do that on both sides, and he and he also at nineteen he's taking free kicks in European semi-finals. Theo Walcott, he can do that. He should be practicing that, making sure he's one of our dead ball specialists. Don't accept playing for Arsenal. You know, Be a player for Arsenal. Be a real player. And and that comes back to the culture again. Where, What does success look like for me? I'm playing there. I'm getting games for England. I'm living in a lovely house. I've got a lovely missus. I've got a lovely family. I, am, I'm, I live about 10 miles to the training ground. Life is great. Sometimes it's just too easy. Where's that desire to really go to the next level? So it comes back to the messages again. What are we trying to achieve? If we are trying to achieve winning the league, then I'm afraid we have to make a call and say, are these people going to take us there? And if they're not, we need to do something and send the message that says, Arsenal are trying to win again. They're trying to win, but they're not just saying it, they're doing it by the actions they take with their player personnel so it's really about action now it's not about words it's about what we do we cannot see these guys get another set of contracts because i don't think they deserve it any longer i think their time is up we need to send a message we don't sell timely enough we used to be great sellers we used to sell people just when their legs were going and then we'd sell them and then they would go the next season now we hold them too long and we don't sell at a good price we sell too late so yeah, that's what we need to improve upon. So it's all about our actions, down on words.
1: So, real quick, and and just um, one word answers: yes or no, Clive. Uh, and and obviously, not all of these are going to go. But I'm just going to list some names. You tell me: yes, you'd sell, or no, you'd keep. Uh, Theo Walcott. Yep. Jack Wilshire? Yep. Kieran Gibbs. Yep. Callum Chambers.
2: Ooh, I want to say. I'd say yes.
1: Yeah, okay. Uh, uh, Carl Jenkinson?
2: <clears throat> yes.
1: Alex Oxley-Chamberlain?
2: No, don't be stupid.
1: <laughs> well, okay. I mean, then how am I going to host the rest of this podcast? Um, all right, good enough for that. Uh, all right, let's get on to the last issue, which is just what to do about Thursday night football. And I know it's already causing quite the scheduling conundrum for you, Andrew, with your podcast, but um, it is a conundrum for a manager as well, because taking it seriously can have a huge cost to your league, form, but not taking it seriously gives up an opportunity to win a trophy. And as we've seen through the last four years, a less favored trophy, and I think it's fair to call the FA Cup a slightly less favored trophy, is still a wonderful experience that makes for a fantastic day out and a great memory and something you can actually celebrate with joy and and euphoria. And I mentioned this on a previous pod, but my Chelsea supporting friend said it sucks for him that he's got to go into the summer feeling down about Chelsea because they lost that cup final. Um, And we get to go into the summer on a high. So, I mean, that's Mm -hmm. what it can mean. But for you, is there an argument? This seems to not be the popular sentiment, but one that I kind of ascribe to. Is there an argument for taking Europa League seriously because it's different, because we could win it, because it's something new? Because it does get you into the CL if you win it, and there's certainly no guarantee that we're going to walk back into the top four next season Or do you just think Bennett and and hope that you can compete for a league that we haven't competed for in 10 years?
3: Um, I think think when you enter a tournament, you've got to try and win it. Simple as that. And I don't think Arsenal can be snobby about European football, about European trophies. Um, You know, we had that great win in, in 1994. Um, and we won, I think the FAIRs cup in 1970, maybe, or 71. Clive, you might 70, 1970, you know, so we don't have a, uh, you know, we don't have, this is not a step down for Arsenal in terms of what we've got to show for our European football exploits. 20 years in the champions league was great. And we got to a final and it didn't go the way we wanted. Um, but we don't have anything tangible to show for it. And if you look at the winners of the Europa League down the last number of years, you know they're good teams that win it. It becomes a good, uh, a good competition. Maybe not the group stages. I don't think the group stages are going to uh, excite anybody because you're playing against teams that you would be expected to uh, to to beat. But once you get into the the knockout stages, you get into the uh, the teams that come out of the uh, the Champions League. You know, look, Sevilla have won it uh, three times. Chelsea won it. Atletico Madrid won it a couple of times. Uh, Porto, you know, uh, Manchester United, of course, won it this year. You know, so there are big teams winning this tournament. And I think for Arsenal perhaps to, um, to do more in, in Europe, in the Champions League, if we get back in there winning this trophy would be fantastic because people can say, Oh, it's a poor relation. Of course it's a poor relation, but the FA cup is the poor relation of the premier league. Still a brilliant day. Everybody watched that final, whether they're in Wembley or elsewhere had an amazing time watching their team win a final, lift a trophy. And maybe it will be a, a thing that's difficult to deal with, particularly in the second half of the season, when Premier League games are, are, uh, are ramping up and we've got Thursday and Sunday and Thursday and Sunday to deal with. But that's the reality of our situation. I don't think we can afford to, uh, to bin the tournament just to try and keep the Premier League hopes alive. I think, you know, if you, if, you, if you lose games, if you can't keep momentum going and confidence and belief going, I think we've seen this season what kind of an effect that can have on your team and the way they play. So go out there and try and win it. I think the early stages of the competition will be a way to, to involve uh, members of the squad who wouldn't necessarily play um, other games. You know, we can do a bit of rotation, uh, but once it starts ramping up into the serious part of the, uh, the tournament, I think we've got to go and try our best to win it. Simple as that.
1: Yeah. And it's not a half bad way to get some of those players, some, playing time and and maybe see if there's someone who deserves to crack into the first team or is prepared yeah. to come into the first team when you get an injury. And, you know, yeah. I, I think, think about it this way. What would the last five or six weeks of our season had been like if we didn't have the FA Cup?
0: Jesus. I mean,
1: it would have yeah. been misery, but having that cup final out there kept people hanging on by a thread. And even though there was sort of some internecine sentiment going on, some warfare going on for the most part, I think everybody was still kind of holding on for the possibility of glory at the end of the season you know, the risk mm. you take if you've if you been the Europa League and you get knocked out of it early is what happens if you're 14 points adrift at the top in November and now you have no Europe? I mean, you're really mm. praying for another FA Cup runner. You, you, you know, we know what that could get like. And with Arsene Wenger staying for another couple of years, it, it's going to be more banners flying over stadiums and protests and just ugly scenes. So, you know, I think there is a huge benefit to having multiple fronts on which your season can be a success and not putting all of your eggs into one basket that can be over you know, before you even hit the new year. Clive, I mean, for you, I know you've said, write it off, go for the league. I mean, any desire to maybe see him do it both ways, rotate in the group stage and take it seriously from there, or are you still yeah. a believer that you can't do both?
2: If there's an option to rotate in the group stage. but well, We've just sat here and said, Says, let's sell half the squad, and then we say let's go for four <laughs> trophies in a very arduous Europa league, right? So I look at the, i tell you what I look at, right? I look at the competitive landscape at the top end of the premiership, right? It has never been more competitive. So again, it comes back to our ambitions and our priorities. If you look at Manchester United, they're not skint. They're going to spend big. Man City are playing fantasy football right now. Right, so they're just buying everybody. Liverpool potentially about to buy a 60 million cent a half. So they're feeling emboldened with the new stand. They've got more revenue coming in. They're looking to re establish themselves. Right, Tottenham. Well, Tottenham are the greatest team in the history of mankind, even though they've they've not won a trophy for God knows how long. But everyone's loving Tottenham, right? So Tottenham have got a great young squad. They're building, they're building fast. So you look around and you look at our. Competitive landscape and none of them are going backwards So for me the number one thing we have to do next season is rebuild the aura that is Arsenal Football Club rebuild our aura And to me the best way to do that is have a really competitive Premiership season. It's what counts It's a FA Cup quarterfinal every Saturday. That's what it is now. It's an event I do not think we can put it at risk for anything. Right, we really need to get back to that top level. We talk about attracting players. You will not attract players if you have two or three years outside the Champions League, with Chelsea and Tottenham in London building and growing, the two Manchester clubs building and growing, and Liverpool trying to do the same. Right, so I just think it's so important we reestablish ourselves so you don't let this become a multi-year issue. Right, so, mm. so if that means we don't have to play FC carrier bag I honestly don't care it'd be great to see Ainsley make the Niles gets minutes in that tournament I absolutely think it'd be brilliant it'd be a brilliant way to keep some of our players rather than go out and learn and see what happens and when you get to January when it gets the knockout then we decide how we do it but for me the number one thing has got to be the premiership because it's more important we establish ourselves back at the top table it must not be a two three year thing like it has been for Liverpool and it has been for Spurs until recently so uh that's how I look at things. And when we're looking to go and sign people, and people say, oh, Who do you want to buy? Who do, you want to get? who do you want to get? You know what I'm thinking? I'm thinking, okay, how are we going to rebuild our aura to make Arsenal sort of, a feared club again, a feared side? Thus, the players we need to buy. Mm-hmm. Who's, we need to make sure we have the physicality that we need, that we lacked at certain stages in the season, the speed that we need, that we lacked in certain stages, the devastation in us forward areas, more efficiency. And and that's once we do that, then I think everything else will take care of itself. Re-establish ourselves. Say that was a blip. It's not happening again. We're back. We do that, then we start to lead the way again, rather than reacting to what other
3: people are doing. Yeah. Well, so that's my that's my can wish. I ask Clive, does that not have to be? Does that attitude? And I, I absolutely hear what you're saying. But does that attitude not have to apply to every single game that we play? It, right, uh, I if, hear what you're saying. If we on, if we at a point where we're going well, we're picking and choosing our games, I don't think you can maintain momentum, I don't think you can, you can ride off a tournament that, if you're you know, heading towards the quarterfinals the semifinals of a European competition, you know I, do, I think that the attitude is absolutely right, and I, I agree with you, but I think it has to apply to all the games and, and I, not-
2: I, can't say,
3: I can't say you're wrong, but it's
2: all about how you contextualize things we, when we get knocked out of the Carling Cup, none of us cry. You know why because we know how we approach that tournament we use it to develop people we use it to develop them for the, the season before they go on loan or the season after if we contextualize the Europa league accordingly then it, it will not impact us mentally for the things that we are really going for it's all about the context you wrap around it you want to put a mental protective state around your players' minds mm. and say, this is what we're going for. And that, that's what I would do. If you ask me, by the way, Manchester United got the, the heaviest squad in the league. They spent 250 million last season and they limped over the line. They limped over the line and they were hanging on towards the end of the year. They could not sustain a league challenge. And that's Manchester United. They had a 20 game unbeaten run in there somewhere. I know they drew a lot, so we're talking. This is Arsenal. We, you know, last time I looked, we we pick up the odd injury. There's you know a mean? third so,
1: option, though, isn't there? I mean, can't you rotate intelligently? You know, I mean, like, can't you play a Lucas Perez who's hungry and says, "I'm going to show the manager that I deserve a spot on those big Premier League nights"? Well, right, of course, but whoever the the next Lucas Perez is. Hey, look,
2: in an ideal world, you're absolutely right. And then Santiago Zola goes down, we lose him for a year and a half, right? So. Because we're, we just got to
3: be, for me, it's not well, happening in the Champions League game. It could have happened yeah. in a league game. You know, I, it I, could have happened in training. Could
2: have also, in ask training. yourself
1: this. I mean, look, you've got Guardiola, Mourinho, Klopp, Conte, Pochettino. You've got Everton getting more money now and, and a, a manager who looks like he's getting his legs under him there. There's no guarantee we get back into the top four. The Premier League, with all of its money and all of its managerial talent now, is more of a crapshoot than ever before. You know, yep. getting past an Ajax in a cup final, to me, is actually a more straightforward way to get back into the Champions League. And, I, you know, I'm not saying throw away the Premier League, but it's almost more I'm, of a crapshoot domestically than it is in Europe in terms of the, the status of that competition.
2: So you're almost making my point for me, right? Because <laughs> our competitive <laughs> landscape our competitive landscape is growing. Right? One of the reasons that the top sort of seven or eight are really pushing away how the bottom teams are performing... It's really been quite poor. That's why the points total has been quite high. The first time ever we've had five teams over 75 points. right? So that's telling you the demographic of the league. That's telling you it's all about the top six. So where are we in that at the moment? I'll tell you what, we're fifth. We're fifth. That's where we are. That's where we deserve to finish. We got some We got some green shoes Could we changed our system and we've given Chelsea a slap. right? And so we know we can do it. So how are we going to build? So if I'm looking at this from 30,000 feet as a as a as an exec or someone on the board, I'm looking down saying, okay, I need to re-establish myself. How am I going to do that? So it also, it, it's dependent on our transfer policy, and we talk about losing players from the squad. That means it's going to be a smaller squad, and that means we're going to struggle to manage the multiple competitions and the arduous Europa League. That's just the facts. If we decide to have a heavy squad, and we can do you know, we can play one team on a Thursday and one team on a Sunday, then I'm not going to sit here and say we should throw the game on a Thursday. Absolutely not,
3: right? Yeah, but like, is the Europa League, how much more demanding? I mean, this is a genuine question. How much more demanding is the Europa League to the Champions League when you get to the knockout stages? I mean, we don't know because we don't go beyond the round of 60. We haven't gone beyond the round of well, Well, you know, nobody would be going... Well, uh, if Arsenal are, are, are through to the quarterfinals of the Champions League, then the semifinals of the Champions League, you know, that's a, that's a fixture pile-up that you've got to deal with as well. It's the same yes. thing, but the level is different. You know, I just feel like that w- as a club, we have completely and utterly failed in the Champions League for yep. years. 2006 was a final, but there was a semifinal, wasn't there? 2009... Remember where everybody was in such great form, and then we let in two goals in the first ten. minutes. And that guy, here. Kieran Gibbs, slipped over. Remember?
1: Hey, that, hey, yeah. hey, we won the first <laughs> half tie against Bayern this year. First halves count only. We won the tie. But what
3: I mean is that you know, if if if, why bother with the European football at all? Then you know, this is the thing. No, so, all you I, know, all I'm saying to you is the priority for me is the Premiership, and I, I,
2: and I think you can contextualize Europe. And the priority for me is establishing ourselves within a competitive landscape that is really becoming more competitive. We're talking about the Champions League in 2006. There was only really three clubs at the time fighting for top four. It was us, Chelsea and Manchester United. That's all it was. right? So um, now we're talking about six other potentially with Everton coming in, in the next year or so but we're definitely talking a top six, potentially top seven. So we've got to look after ourselves. We've got to make sure that we're in there, right? So um, for me, it's all about how we react to that competitive landscape. And and no one can tell me, given the year on year, when Sunderland took home 98 million for finishing bottom, that we haven't got to keep our eyes open. Because Leicester showed with the minimal resources they have, what you can do with smart spend. So we, I just think we need to make sure we do our business at home.
3: Well, look, I, I I see where you're coming from. I just think we've got to go for it. I don't see why we wouldn't. It's a it's a trophy. Uh, it is a way into the Champions League as well, as Elliot has said. Um, and I think you know if we're if we're serious about rebuilding the aura of the football club, uh, you know I think yeah. it has to it has to apply to everything, to everything yep. that we do. And you know I I, I think it's I don't think you can contextualise the Europa League in quite the same way as the Carling Cup because, A, we haven't been in it for so long and Carling yeah. Cup is seen as the, as the fourth trophy. But, you know, um, yeah, let's... It's a let's debate. And
2: a I can't bit. win it. I can't win <laughs> no, it. I just, it's, just, right. it's just my feeling. It's my feeling. That's, how, that's what I would do. No. I, I can't win it. It's just... Uh, just a feeling we, I have we, to we get it right. Clive
1: you'd keep Giroud wrapped in cotton wool for the premiership Saturdays and, and Andrew and I would run him out there in, in Ukraine and it's fine um, yeah. <laughs> let's uh, l- l- let's let's leave it there on that I, I want to end with one quick thing so on the Ars Mouse podcast which I-, I do sometimes with Tim Clark and Dave Meekland we have something called uh, that Tim calls the transfer erection section. In keeping with my uh, uh, physiology, I'd like to have a very tiny erection section, <laughs> just super quick. Clive, <laughs> a, a name, a big name that you'd love for us to sign that you think it, you know something in the back of your head says it could happen, and then one sort of black sheep, odd personal preference of yours, guy. Just just a name for each of them. Two guys you'd like us to get.
2: Two guys. I like the guy uh, Nebi Cater,
1: centre mid from RB okay. like Yeah, I like him. And you get one more player. Okay.
2: It's got to be him. Because
1: remember, we're only signing two. It's got to be who? Yep. Mbappe? Okay. Yep. Okay. Andrew, your uh, dream signing and then your sort of pet signing.
3: Um. Yeah, I mean, look, it's, it's never going to happen, but I would like Mbappe as well. Uh, just because it would just be what a fucking holy, what it would make us all shit our pants with excitement and joy that Arsenal could, A, attract that player and B, splash out and, and bring him in. Terrible with names when it comes to transfers and and who I'd like, but I really like I really like, uh, really like Varati at PSG. Oof. I know that that's not a that's not a realistic. Those are two dream as well. signings. But
0: if you're for a player
3: that <laughs> I would like to see uh, come to the club and who could do something for us and who could really take the team uh, forward. He he's a guy I'd love to see as well. But you know, again, with both of those. Um, I'm gonna use Clive's uh, expectation shield here uh, for both of those, so I don't get disappointed. But that's that's where I go. What about you?
1: Um, I, I would go Abamyang and Sesc Fabregas. <laughs> <laughs> I'd just love to see him playing an Arsenal shirt one last time and you can send complaints about that to Stilberto on Twitter um, so hey guys I, I really appreciate it I know we went just a little bit longer than we intended but uh, Clive is on Twitter Clive PFC Clive as always uh, all kidding aside it is an absolute pleasure to have you
2: thank you, young man appreciate thank it thank you
1: and uh, I have to admit it, it was a short term contract indeed we will have uh, Tim and Paul back on in the future but uh, Andrew obviously uh, really just pleasure to talk to you and appreciate you coming on
3: Hey, my pleasure. Anytime.
1: Thank you. Uh, Andrew is on uh, Twitter at Arsblog, obviously uh, puts out two fantastic podcasts a week, a great blog, live shows, and all the things that go on with being a true professional, none of which we are familiar with here. Uh, anyway, my name is Elliot Smith. You can block me on Twitter at Yankee Gunner. Leave us a five-star review. Write nasty things about us in the comment section. If you want to write them about Andrew, that's fine. He's never coming back. Um, in any event, uh, should be hopefully some interesting announcements coming. Uh, the inside scoop you just got here today is that maybe Kolasnich, is that how you say it? Klasnich? Uh, oh, the, the guy, yeah. the left-back guy who's replacing Kieran Gibbs' The Bosnian squad. guy. The, the Bosnian dude. He's, he's getting announced uh, maybe by the time you've heard this. So uh, if there is still a world to wake up to tomorrow with everything that's happening in it, uh, hopefully we'll be back with another podcast shortly. In any event, thanks, cheers, and we'll talk to you soon.